Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, March 30th. Could our province be on the verge of another resource boom? We speak with veteran journalist and author Diane Francis for details on how a unique process for mining lithium could be a game changer for the Alberta energy sector. Are Canadian businesses doing enough to support the mental health of their employees? We speak with a human resources professional who explains how far we've come addressing mental health issues in the workplace and how much more needs to be done. And finally, the cost of living is forcing all of us to rethink our spending. So how can we effectively balance our household budgets when it comes to wants versus needs? We speak with Tandy Thomas, Professor of Marketing and Consumer Behavior at Queen's University about a concept called split-brain budgeting. Lithium is a critical resource needed in batteries to power, for example, electric vehicles and cell phones. And Alberta could lead the way in lithium mining. And might this be the next boom for our province. Joining us to talk about it is journalist and author Diane Francis. Good morning, Diane. Thanks for being with us again. Well, thank you very much. Uh, This is uh, one of the most wonderful, exciting stories I've come across in a long time. Yeah, I I was reading your article, and boy, positive for sure, to say the least. So we wanted to dig into this topic with you. Tell us what you were writing about in terms of Alberta maybe being at a very pivotal moment in our economic development when it comes to lithium. Yeah, so what what I ended, I started off the article with, you know, I've been around the oil patch for many decades, is that uh, people back east, you know, most Canadians don't realize probably the most important date in the last century in the economic history of Canada took place on February 13, 1947, on the farm near Edmonton when the Leduc oil discovery was made. It ushered in prosperity for, you know, Alberta, for Calgary, for Canada, and is, you know, led to us, uh, to the creation of hundreds of companies and billions of dollars of investment into, into the oil business. And, you know, as a result, you know, Alberta's and Saskatchewan's oil industry is world-class, one of the few world-class industries we have in Canada, and something to be very proud of. Now, underlying the Leduc, it wasn't just the one well. It was tapping into a geological formation called Leduc that extends about 15, encompasses 15% of the, of the province and was unbelievably prolific in terms of oil production for decades. And so what has happened is a geologist from Calgary, Chris Dornbus, and I came across and I was, I was, moderating a panel at a conference in Washington, D.C. about critical minerals and metals, and lithium is one of them on everybody's list. And I met him, and then I got into it, and then I realized that he was sitting, he he had an idea, another big Leduc idea that, that the world is going to increasingly hear from. Let's break this down, Diane, if you can paint a picture for us, because when we talk about lithium and lithium mining the images are conjured up of these huge kind of craters in the earth is, is that a potential no. for alberta or is there a different type of extraction of of lithium this is this is what makes this story even better uh this he's a geologist and he went and he had a theory that um that there was copper in the old leduc mines because I don't know if you're aware, a lot of people aren't, but when you pump oil, you pump up much more water. So you separate the oil from the water and put the water back down into the ground. 
He was looking and he had found trace amounts of copper, another valuable rare metal, that critical metal that is very much sought after. And he didn't find that, but he found lithium, which is unbelievably valuable, $50,000 a ton. Oof. And so, yeah, and it's, it's a rare metal. He calls his company E3 Lithium because lithium is the third element on the periodical table. And it is very lightweight. It's a kind of like a salt. Anyway, it is in what they call the brine. In other words, the leftover water underground in the Duke Formation after the oil was taken out contains untold amounts of lithium potentially. Now, we know it's there. It's a matter of feasibility. So he has a very uh, strong partner, Imperial Oil, which is ExxonMobil. Uh, they own a piece of the company, but they own, they still own the rights to much of the Leduc formation. And they are together going to build a pilot project to see whether they can pump up this stuff, separate it into, into, they, they know they can. They've done it in a pilot project basis. Now they're going to have to do a feasibility plan. And so that's the next step. So it's, it's not guaranteed. But I want to tell you, this is potentially, this is maybe the most exciting resource uh, potential anywhere. And why so? Like, how big could this potentially be, do you think, Diane? Well, if, if it's, I don't know. Uh, he, he, was, he has uh, some figures, uh, mining figures that he just released this week uh, that were, were impressive. It's not proven reserves, but. Basically, he's talking about uh, uh, 16 million tons, okay, at 50,000 a pop. Wow. Incredible. This is billions. This is billions. And and he thinks he can find that. Now, the other secret sauce to this story, and I was on two publicly listed gold mine companies, mining is incredibly expensive, underground mining. I mean, it's incredibly expensive. But he, he, he says, and he's right, all you're doing, you go back into the old Leduc wells, you pump up the water, you put it through a plant, separate the lithium out, put the water back in. So there's no environmental damage to speak of, unlike mining, the, the way mining is done with lithium now in Australia and, and in other parts of the world. And it is, it is a fraction of the cost. So, you know, it's, it's, it's almost too good to be yeah. true. So... Scarily you know, so, I'm not right? Pumping the, I'm not pumping the stock, and of course, ethically, I did not own the stock before I wrote the story, and I'm going to watch it. It took a bounce this week, and I'm not an advisor, so nobody should take my word for this, but I think this guy has come across, you know, one of the most interesting ideas. So we'll see how it, it's... It, and, and the interesting, interesting thing is, he's not just some little guy. He's got a geological tech team of 30 in Calgary, and he's backstopped by the biggest oil company on the planet. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is this to me is is really it's it's what I call a sexy business story. Yeah, you can hear the excitement in your voice, Diane. That that's you know completely clear. Uh, but as far as the competition for lithium, what what other nations will we be competing against if we can well, you're, get in the you're, game? You're, you're, there's there's a big bunch of it in in South America where they have low-cost production, and they're also getting it out of brines in spent, spent mines. It spent mines, copper mines, I think. Uh, and then in Australia, it's hard rock. 
hugely expensive to produce and environmentally very difficult. And so there are uh, there are deposits of hard rock lithium uh, scattered throughout Canada. We know of. I think there's some in Saskatchewan. There's there's a bunch. Of, there's there's some in Ontario and and uh, and Quebec. But you know, if he can produce this the way you produce oil, this is a no brainer. He can he can um, uh, they can outcompete anybody. And in the hard rock, you'd have to have a, you know a specialized extraction plant. I, I imagine, which means jobs aplenty should this actually go ahead and happen. Well, yeah. So what he's got is is they're talking about they're looking at and remember Exxon Imperial's behind him. Uh, they're they're holding his hand and looking at this themselves. I mean, I'm, they must can't believe their good fortune, but because they still own a lot of the leases. <laughs> in the Latouk, okay? So they're going to benefit on the royalty side as well and the freehold land. But um, they they are looking at a $600 million uh, plant, and that's what they want to do. And they, they feel that they're, you know, not far away from proving up their patented process to separate this stuff from the brine and, you know, and... and uh, you know the, the other the other advantage of this is that they know where the resource is. Usually, you're drilling for years until you find this mm-hmm. stuff. But it seems to be intrinsic to the water left behind in the Leduc oil wells. Wow. Amazing! Just an incredible story. We can understand why you're so excited yeah. about it. And Diane, keep our phone number if you have some updates when we get a little bit closer uh, to seeing this uh, being in production and, and coming to life. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, you're more than welcome. That is journalist and author Diane Francis. Do you feel your workplace supports your mental health or should companies be doing more to support the mental health of their workforces? Joining us to discuss is Kilian Shukalari, HR Advisory Manager at Peninsula Canada. Good morning to you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Well, it's a, you know, not only is this something that should be on the minds of all of us if, if we have a job and, and uh, somewhere that provides benefits to us and, and literally uh, to, to go to work and feel safe. But I'm wondering what the findings were because the, the new survey is out. Uh, what was the biggest takeaway? Well, there was a lot of data, Andrew, and honestly, uh, thousands of employers um, were, were surveyed, like you mentioned, and the understanding is that there's been a huge increase in the amount of uh, individuals, so employees, uh, coming forward. But also, um, what we find it's um, it's really, you know, comforting is the fact that a lot of employers are also open to having these discussions with their employees and making sure that uh, they put some solutions in place. A lot of the employers have been trying to look into ways to help, but I think the main thing uh, and the main takeaway is that there's been an increase in individual employers understanding that they have to deal with it at some point. Major employers obviously have a lot more on their hands, but also a lot more resources. Our concern at Peninsula is with smaller companies. They don't have the same amount of resources to maybe go after an employee assistance program of some kind. Kilian, we had a text in that said, you know, HR is really all about the, the company, not the employees. Do you think that's changed in the past you know, handful of years, particularly through the pandemic? I mean, we've seen a lot of shifts when it comes to um, n- not just where the responsibility lands, but how uh, the employers are addressing certain concerns coming from the from their employees. What we have also noticed is that the pandemic itself just pushed a bit more pressure on, on employees uh, and employers. Now, 
one, one thing that I have to mention is the fact that a lot of the, um, the employers and especially uh, junior managers having to deal with a workload like this uh, when it comes to shortage of workers at times, um, longer hours, uh, managing a bit of the workload and also responsibility dealing with uh, mental health uh, concerns that relates to that. It's where we're finding most of the challenges. So there, I, I, I would say there is a shift. Uh, but it's a, it's a fine balancing act at this point, and I think the shift is going to continue as our workforce and our workplace keeps changing. One of the results from the survey, Kellyanne, mentions that 12% of employees have uh, confided in their bosses about their mental health concerns. Only 12%. Did you find that surprising? Unfortunately, it's not surprising. Andrew, I'm going to link it back to what I, what I just said earlier. It's because the ability of the employers to act upon it. So this is the concern that we have. A lot of the employers are open to having the discussion. They're open to listen. But when it comes to action and how they can help the employees, that's where a lot of uh, um, companies fail, especially small to medium-sized companies. So I think that's, that, that's the concern here. Um, a lot of training needs to be done. A lot more awareness needs to go into the workplace. Many factors, unfortunately, um, aggravate or, or at least... Uh, push uh, individuals towards uh, a bit of a concern when it comes to mental health. Like I said earlier, workload, culture, a toxic environment, maybe sometimes harassment in the workplace. Uh, Kilian, you said training and awareness, you know, is is needed more of it. But how do Canadian employers rate when it comes to addressing mental health and and giving additional days or or that sort of thing compared to other countries? How, how do we fare in this country here? So this is the thing between Canada and Australia. Uh, there, there's a lot more work being done, uh, as opposed to other other countries out there. There's a lot more focus on uh, uh, mental health. A lot of the provinces have actually even put uh, forward through government uh, support and um, and guidance and also funding towards mental health. So it's a little bit better. But that being said, there's a lot more work to be done. Um, we need to get the, those numbers up in terms of employees coming forward, but at the same time up with regards to employers knowing and understanding what the resources are, what kind of measures they have to put in place. Do they have the policies? Um, so that's, what, that's where it also starts. Do they have the policy in place where employees can understand from day one? Where do I go if I have a concern? Uh, do they have those conversations on a regular basis about workload, work-life balance, um, culture uh, within the environment and how that should be improving to adapt to different employees. Kellyanne, we were talking earlier in the program when we were mentioning that you were coming on to discuss this topic, and we hit on something that was, you know, years ago. If I called up the boss and said, I have to take a mental health day, that would can be considered a sign of weakness perhaps among your coworkers. Is this becoming more acceptable? Taking a day not for the flu and not for maybe I strain my back, uh, but for mental health. This is something that is going to continue to become more common. The stigma is certainly gone for the most part. A lot of the um, employees are more open to uh, to have the discussion. It's a combination also of the high numbers of employees that are actually um, concerned with mental health and maybe have had episodes where um, they, they have had to, to share with someone. So in numbers, usually, that's where the support comes. And that's why I said a lot of trainings to go um, into, especially junior managers, in understanding what the expectations would be, how they can actually help these individuals. Because sometimes, again, it's all about being proactive uh, and being and making sure that you you are uh, 
taking some initial steps, you can certainly alleviate some of the concerns and maybe reduce the risk of things aggravating even more. Um, so honestly, the days of, you know, leave your issues at home are, are gone. You certainly should be having a conversation with your manager. You should feel comfortable, but at the same time, the manager should be prepared as to how to address, who to direct you to, if there are resources internally, or who to direct you to when, when there is an option to uh, go externally. Interesting conversation, super topical. Thanks for your time this morning, Kilian. Thank you for having me. Bye. Appreciate it. Kilian Shukalari, HR Advisory Manager at Peninsula. You can find more at PeninsulaCanada.com. Canadians are eager to get out and spend following the limitations during the pandemic with the cost of living and making us think twice before those big purchases. How can we strike that balance between wants versus needs? Joining us to discuss is Tandy Thomas, Professor of Marketing and Consumer Behavior at Smith School of Business at Queen's University. Uh, Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for taking the time. So can you explain, this is an interesting term, split brain budgeting. What does it mean and how can we use it for our own personal gain? So what we're seeing happening is consumers are behaving in two very different ways depending on what kind of purchases they're they're making. So on the one hand, they are trying to skimp and save money every turn with some of their purchases and then splurging on um, big ticket items. So designer products, eating out, um, going on vacations and that kind of thing. So we're seeing these two contradictory behaviors happening at the same time. Um, and that's referring, that's the split part of this. And why, Professor, is it because we sort of did without for a few years through the pandemic and now we've decided, well, we're just not going to put up with that anymore, so we'll skimp here so that we can spend here? Yes, I think that's a lot of what is going on here. It has been a hard few years for consumers um, where we've had to make lots and lots and lots of decisions about money. And there's been a there's been people that struggled through the pandemic with not having money, people who struggled through the pandemic because they couldn't do the things they wanted to do. Now we're seeing inflation um, working in very different ways from how it's worked before. So people are thinking about every single purchase a lot, and that is that makes people fatigued. Um, and so in a lot of a lot of situations, people are like, I just want to do this thing that feels good. And so they do. But that juxtaposition, Professor, when you talk about, for example, being super budget-friendly, tight with our dollars, for example, shopping more so at a dollar store, uh, but at the same time maybe going home and booking that tropical vacation. So it's a, it's a weird conundrum, isn't it? It's a weird conundrum, and it becomes, um, in the one sense, you could look at it as like, oh, this is just good budgeting. You save money here so that you can buy these other things that you want um, in this other pile of goods. Um, but we're really seeing that there's a discrepancy between the amount of money that's being saved and the amount of money that's being spent. Um, so skimping at the grocery store doesn't necessarily add up to enough savings to be able to afford that big vacation because vacations are getting more expensive mm-hmm. too with inflation. So, Professor, is that where another term revenge spending comes in? Can you elaborate on that concept? Yes, the revenge spending um, is what we're seeing with consumers who have been um, holding back for so long. They've been restrained because they needed to, because of maybe um, restricted finances during the pandemic or because they couldn't. And they're just like, I just want to do it. I am going on this vacation. I am buying this product. I'm going to this restaurant um, come hell or high water. 
Interesting. Uh, well, can we take it as a, a kind of an unintended consequence, but as a positive that uh, the tough economic times, kind of the roller coaster we're on, might boost consumer financial literacy? That those folks who were just coasting along didn't really look at the balance in the bank account uh, now have to really look at budgeting. Could this be a positive moving ahead? I think that it could be a positive. I hope that it can be a positive. We have seen um, much more attention being paid to um, the economic situation of the country and the world um, and consumers now than we have historically. Um, If you think back to 2020, um, most consumers didn't know anything about supply chains and supply chain management. Um, And then all of a sudden, we don't have toilet paper and now everyone is knowing and um, is suddenly talking about supply chain. So consumers have learned a lot about how markets work. The inflationary pressures we're under now have been getting a ton of attention. Consumers are very aware of it. And so this is a prime opportunity when people are thinking about these things and learning about them possibly for the first time to also throw in some um, good lessons about how to manage the situation, how to do better, how to think about your finances so that you can do the things you want to do without putting yourself in financial jeopardy down the road. Professor, I don't know if you can speak to this, but, uh, you know, and I know you're based at Queen's University in Ontario, but for us here in Alberta, the, you know, the oil and gas industry made a lot of people a lot of money. And, and there were a lot of people, you know, who were quite willing to spend freely buying toys, et cetera, not really holding back, not really budgeting too much, perhaps. And then things got a little difficult. And, and I know we see a lot of people who have financial troubles because of that. But do you think, you know, when we look at that, um, when we look at that sort of the, the behavior of spending, whether we have the money or not, d- does that relate to how we perhaps have lived here in Alberta previous and, and kind of people just don't want to, you know, get that? I, I guess what I'm asking is, do people not want to take that understanding and live their, their life that way? They just want to spend anyway because that's the way we used to? Yes. Um, it is much more fun spending money than not spending money. Yeah. Um, and um, And change is hard. If people have built up a lifestyle, they've built up a pattern, they haven't built up the financial management skills that they may need because they've been fortunate to not need to manage their money that carefully. These are all things that are difficult to do. Um, It's not easy to change. It's not easy to learn how to manage your budget if you've never been taught how to and needed to in the past. Um, so consumers need to recognize that they need to maybe do some of these things that are a little bit more difficult um, and take the time to step back before making a purchase, to think really carefully, like, do I really need this? Do I really need this now? What if I postponed this for a few months? Um, and a lot of time just putting a little bit of distance between the immediate purchase situation and where you are um, can help consumers to reflect and decide, is this something that I really need? Mm-hmm. And ideally, maybe go and like pull up that spreadsheet and see what is the cash flow looking like going into the future? Mm-hmm. Um, what kinds of things do I need to be paying for next year and five years down the road in terms of savings? And just like a little bit of time to put a little bit more thought into it can have a fairly big impact. This split brain budgeting, as it's called, you know, squirreling away as much cash as possible for those necessities while dreaming and maybe booking that vacation. Uh, is this a, a Canadian phenomenon or due to the state of, uh, you know, being post-pandemic and inflation, is, it, is this something that's happening globally, in your opinion? 
Yeah, well, this is certainly something that is not unique to Canada. This is something that's happening in um, the United States, in um, really in Western in Western Europe, um, in Canada, and it's all these economies that are in a situation where people had to hold back, and they now find themselves in a situation where the market has opened up again. They do have some money, um, and they want to spend. Financial conversation, it's an interesting one for sure, always. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Professor. Thank you. Thanks. Tandy Thomas, Professor of Marketing, Consumer Behavior at Smith School of Business at Queen's University.